Please stand for the reading of God's word. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of Goyim, these kings made more, made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sedim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoreth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as Alparan on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Anmishpat, that is, Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sedim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sedim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I was uh, sharing with my growth group this past Wednesday how difficult this passage was going to be to read. 
And Jorge, who we all know, said, you know what? This would be a great Sunday to have everybody stand for the reading of God's word and then say, and we're all going to read it out loud together. <laughs> would have been awesome. All right, so we're, uh, we're continuing a series that we began a number of weeks ago looking at the life of Abram in Genesis 12 through 25. Abraham, of course, to whom I'm referring. Uh, last week we looked at Genesis 13, and we saw how Abram, after that massive failure at the end of Genesis chapter 12, in which he you know, went off to Egypt when, when famine hit the land of Canaan and uh, when confronted by or, or really sensing the threat of Pharaoh taking uh, Sarai, finding her beautiful and taking her as his own, you know, connived this grand scheme to avoid himself being captured or hurt, not so much concerned about Sarai in that instance. So that was the end of Genesis chapter 12. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 13, we see Abram, if you remember from last week, restored to the land, restored first and foremost to God. Here's repentant Abram who is worshiping God in Genesis chapter 12, walking entirely by faith and not by sight. Lot, however, was walking by sight and not by faith. You remember what happened uh, in Genesis chapter 13 that we looked at last week. You know, Abram and Lot realized our flocks, our herds are getting too big. We can't be supported by this land of Canaan that God has provided. And so Abram trusted God's promises. He, he trusted God to provide ultimately. And so he said to Lot, you choose. And Lot walked by sight. He chose what seemed best for himself. He chose the the better land just outside the land of Canaan, and he pitched his tents near Sodom. Well, here in Genesis chapter 14, we see the beginning of the negative consequences of that decision for Lot. And we also see Abram continuing to grow in his ability to walk by faith. And in the process, have the promises of God confirmed to him once again, this time through this mysterious figure of Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High. It's a very interesting story. What do we learn from it? I think really there's two things that we're going to focus on this morning. The first is something that we learn from Abram, and that's this, that the courage needed in victory may actually be greater than the courage needed in battle. The courage needed in victory may actually be greater than the courage needed in battle. The, the fortitude, the determination, the, the need, you know, the, 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 the desire to trust God in the midst of, in our case, spiritual warfare, is great. We'd be lost without God's help. But do we realize how much courage, how much strength, how much help we need from God after those victories have been won. On the other side of, of walking by faith and not by sight, of, of trusting God to provide instead of grasping for ourselves, of trusting that God's way is better instead of giving ourselves over to sin yet again, when we've trusted God in the midst of that and are on the other side of that, do we see how vulnerable we may still be and how much we need courage to trust God. There's also something we learn from Melchizedek, and, 
And that's this, for all the mystery concerning his identity and all the wonderful ways in which he prefigures Christ, there's an example in Melchizedek that we're called to follow, and that's the example of blessing people, of blessing God before people, and of reminding others who God is, especially in their moment of vulnerability. Those are the two things that we see happening in this passage, and we're going to look at Jesus Christ as well and how Christ is greater than both Abram and Melchizedek. So three things we're going to consider this morning. First, Abram's courage. Second, Melchizedek's blessing. And then third, how Christ is greater than both. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that you would help us. We thank you for this portion of your word. Lord, every word in this passage is inspired by you. It is useful for instructing us, for building us up in the faith. And so we thank you for it. We pray, O oh God, that by your spirit you would work through it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, Abram's courage. And we're going to see how Abram was courageous both in battle and in victory. So, you know, the battle, of course, takes place in verses 1 through 16. Let me summarize that for us instead of going back through and reading all those names. So, you know, 12 years, um, uh, you know, uh, Sodom and uh, the others are in you know, paying tribute to Chedorlaomer and these other kings. So what was going on? In the ancient Near East at the time, it was very common for kind of these regional kings, these regional, you know, city-states to, to be both, you know, banding together and at war with one another. There were resources there that people wanted. And when a uh, king or a conquering coalition of kings had some kings that they had conquered, they were considered vassal uh, nations or vassal states, they were forced to pay tribute to the victorious king or the victorious coalition. And so here you've got Sodom and these other nations that are paying tribute to Chedorlaomer and the other nations, the other kingdoms that are being referred to there. And so, you know, whether it was money you know, in the form of taxes that was being sent to the north, or whether it was produce that was being sent. There were natural resources in the south that were uh, desirable, and so those natural resources in a large degree were going to be given over to the kingdoms in the north. And so it was normal for vassal states to pay tribute to those who were, uh, had conquered them and were ruling over them. So the text tells us Sodom and the others have been doing that for 12 years. You're 13, we're not going to take it, right? They decide we're done. We are not paying any more tribute to the north. And then year 14 comes. Word's gotten back to Chedorlaomer and the others, and they decide, yeah, we're not going to take it either. <laughs> and so they make their way down what would have been known as the King's Highway. The King's Highway went you know, north and south uh, from, the Sy from Syria in the north to the Dead Sea in the south. It was a common route that was followed by caravans for trading, and it was also a common route followed by um, you know, military uh, expeditions that would take place as well. You read about it in Numbers chapter 20, that same road that went from north to south in that way. And so Chedorlaomer and his group of you know, uh, fellow kings, fellow 
Fellow soldiers make their way down the king's highway. They go around the east side of the Jordan River, and they defeat the three rebel groups that are listed in verse 5. Then they marched past the Dead Sea down to Seir and defeated the Horites, and then they made their way over and, you know, kind of beat up on the Amalekites and the Amorites, as verses 6 and 7. And then they turned their attention towards Sodom. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah knew when to hold them, and they knew when to fold them. They knew when to walk away, and they knew when to run. And they ran. They got out of there. The text tells us in verse 10 that some fell into the bitumen pits. Now, it's interesting. That word that is translated fell in could also be translated lower themselves down. And we know that that happened in particular in uh, Genesis chapter 24, where Rebecca is said to have lowered herself down from the camel that she was riding. I don't think in Genesis chapter 24, Rebecca just decided to throw herself off the camel, right? She fell down. She lowered herself down. That's probably what happened here. Uh, the kings or, you know, maybe some of the king's men, whatever the case may be, lowered themselves into the bitumen pits, you know, and just like a lake wouldn't be filled all the way up to the top. You know, they kind of were hiding perhaps before they got down into the the tar. (laughs) And then the rest fled for the hills. And Chedorlaomer and his coalition went ahead and uh, plundered Sodom and Gomorrah. They finished off their their conquest to suppress the rebellion. They took you know all kinds of uh, all kinds of goods and people, including Lot and his family. So then Abram gets word. Somebody escapes the onslaught, comes to Abram and says to Abram, "They've they've done this, and they've got Lot, and they've got Lot's family." And so Abram just you know instinctively says, "We got to take care of our own." And so he goes. He takes. 318 of his trained men, we know that they weren't just, you know, shepherds that he had pulled out from the field. The Hebrew word that's used there is used to describe men that had been trained for battle. He takes 318 of his trained men. He's also part of a a coalition. He has some, um, he's in, you know, kind of a a covenant with some of these other uh, countries around him. So he has other soldiers that he's leading as well. I think it's significant that it's, Abram the Hebrew that's referred to here. In other words, there's a kind of a reminder that Abram was just kind of this tribal chieftain, if you will. He wasn't like a, like a regional power. He's not mentioned as a king. And yet here's Abram courageously trusting God, taking his 318 men, leading a coalition of others. They go by night, they attack Chedorlaomer and the others, and they win. And Abram recaptures Lot and his family. Great courage. Relying on the Lord for victory in a battle that, humanly speaking, you know, you would never think he'd have a shot. And yet God gave the victory. But then we get verses 17 through 24. And there we read about the courage that Abram needed in victory. We know that there was a battle happening here, that there was a a war, if you will, that was being raged, a temptation that was being placed before Abram by the way in which the narrative is structured. We very intentionally have this option given to Abram. Will you choose the riches, 
worldly possessions, the wealth that the king of Sodom is offering you? Or will you receive the word of Melchizedek? The reminder from Melchizedek of the promises of God that are yours. Which will you choose, Abram? And you can imagine that Abram was in a very, you know, I'll say vulnerable place. Not vulnerable because he was so weak and tired, probably was, but mainly vulnerable because that's the point where it would have been tempting to just kind of let his guard down a little bit. God has done this great thing for me. I've won the battle. We've done great things in the name of the Lord. Right? I think we also have a little bit of a contrast here between the, the spoils, the riches that Abram left Egypt with when Pharaoh gave him all kinds of resources and then, you know, get out of here and, and take all this with you. And Abram took it. I, everything ultimately comes from the Lord, right? Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And we've always read, I think, you know, Genesis 12, latter part of Genesis 12, and just assumed that that was God blessing Abram through Pharaoh. Well, at one level, yeah, but I think we should ask the question, should Abram have taken the same tack with Pharaoh that he did here in Genesis chapter 14 with the king of Sodom? And I think a good case can be made that, yeah, he should have said to Pharaoh, I've got the promises of God. I've fallen short, I haven't trusted them, but I don't need your money because I've got the promises of God. God said everything's going to be mine and my descendants after me in the same way that he did when it came to that same temptation brought to him from the king of Sodom. So you can imagine Pharaoh being tempted. I deserve this, don't I? Isn't this God enriching me? He might have told himself that very thing. So what do we learn? I think we are reminded here that we must be courageous as well in battle and in victory. The battle, you know, we can talk about. It's a spiritual battle that we face. We stand, as it were, between two kings. Abram stood before the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. One continue, you know, encouraging him to pursue the path of, you know, of, of self the other to pursue the glory of God. We stand before two kings. One is the father of lies, who would say to us, you can have everything you want, just give me your soul. Same thing he said to Jesus when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness. And then we have the king of glory, Jesus Christ, who says, I own everything. Anything that you would have would be coming from my hand. So trust me, give your life to me, and find a peace that surpasses all understanding. Find fulfillment that nothing in this world can ultimately give you. That's the battle that's taking place within us. It's a battle that's taking place and and thrust upon us from without. It's the battle that the world is constantly saying, you're going to go better and find better joy with with the king of lies than you ever would with the king of glory. And that sin nature that dwells within us wants to believe that. And yet, by God's grace, the Spirit of God dwells within us. And there is this battle, therefore, that is raging between the flesh, between the Spirit, within us. It's spiritual warfare. 
The lies are presented in all kinds of different ways. It's not just a matter of, of worldly possessions, although because we, by, for the most part, are very well, you know, um, we're, we're blessed materially, financially. We, we feel that battle more acutely than most of our brothers and sisters around the world. And yet here we are. We do face that temptation when it comes to consumerism. But it's not just a matter of possessions, is it? It's anything that has to do with whatever I would want to take for myself or say to myself in order to exalt myself. Versus humbling myself before the king of glory and letting him have his way in and through me. This is spiritual warfare. It's not just a matter of, God, help me to do the right thing and not the wrong thing. It is, God, help me to submit my life to you, my very self to you, and not seek to build up myself instead of submit myself to you. This is spiritual warfare. This is the battle in which we need courage. It's courage that God gives us. It's strength that he gives us. The ability to fight this battle, God gives us. We're going to come back to that at the end. But don't miss the fact that we are in a war. Now, you know that if you're a Christian. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. The other thing that I'm not telling you that you don't already know is on the other side of those times when God grants us the victory in battle. We resist the temptation. We say no to that which everything in, a, in our being wants to say yes to. You know what it's like on the other side to, of that to say, well, now I can relax. Yeah, I didn't go all the way there. Maybe I can just go a little bit there, you know, because look at how strong I am. And then we find ourselves in a vulnerable place once again. Vulnerable in victory. Needing God's courage in victory even more than we did in the heat of the battle. It's in moments like those that we need someone like Melchizedek in our lives. So Abram's courage, but let's look second at Melchizedek's blessing. Who is Melchizedek? That is the $50,000 question. There are some things we know from Scripture. We read about Melchizedek. David refers to him in Psalm 110. The author of Hebrews will refer to him extensively in Hebrews 6 and 7 especially. Um, From the text here, we know that he is king of Salem and he's priest of God. So king of Salem, Salem actually most likely is Jerusalem. Not the Jerusalem, obviously, of the time of Christ, not the Jerusalem where there was the you know, Levitical priesthood and, 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 and Jewish people. It was the Jerusalem of 4,000 years before the time of Christ or in the time of the patriarchs. It would have been perhaps a little trading town. Who knows? But the text tells us that's where Melchizedek was from. And not just from, but where he was king. Also, priest of God Most High. That is fascinating. Now, there's not, again, not referring to the later Levitical priesthood that would come during the time of Moses, just referring to one who we don't even, didn't even, I mean, Abraham wouldn't have known. We don't even, didn't even know that there, here is this other person whom God is called, whom God is using in some way, will ultimately use in a big way here in the life of Abram. 
but someone whom God has called to be a priest in his name. Someone other than Abram that Abram wouldn't have known about. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to, again, tell us a little bit about Melchizedek. In Hebrews chapter 7, when you go read that later, which I hope you will, keep in mind that the author of Hebrews is not primarily making a a contrast between Melchizedek and Jesus in that passage. He's making an argument using Melchizedek. The argument that he's making to his Jewish Christian readers who are beginning to face persecution and are tempted to go back into Judaism instead of holding fast to their Christian faith, to them the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, If you go back there, you're going back to something less than what you have now in Christ. And so in Hebrews chapter 6 and 7, the author of Hebrews is trying to prove how Jesus' priesthood is greater than that of the Levitical priesthood. And part of the way in which he argues that is by pointing to Melchizedek and this interaction between Melchizedek and Abram. And the argument goes like this. Listen, guys, you know, in, in a way, Levi, right? Levi was in Abram. Biblical language, in his loins. Okay, right. Levi was in Abram. Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek. And so Abram recognized that Melchizedek's priesthood, Melchizedek himself, was greater than him, greater than he, Abram. And so that meant Levi is actually less than Melchizedek. Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than that of Levi. That's the argument that the author of Hebrews is making. He's also you know, kind of comparing Melchizedek and Jesus. You know, in the same way that Melchizedek, we don't have any kind of genealogical record, he just kind of appears on the scene and disappears. No lineage-based priesthood as with the Levites. So to Jesus, no lineage-based priesthood. He doesn't come from the tribe of Levi. Jesus doesn't. Ultimately, of course, Jesus comes from heaven. He is the priest par excellence of God. So that's the argument that is happening in Hebrews. But from it, we can infer some things about this Melchizedek and ultimately how he is a forerunner of Christ. Interesting theology. What's the point? The point, I think, for us this morning is bound up in what Melchizedek says to Abram. And that has to do with a blessing and a reminder. The blessing is a blessing given to Abram. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Melchizedek blesses Abram. And then there's the blessing of God, and blessed be God most I, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. There's the blessing, and, and woven in there are the reminders. The reminder that God is the possessor of everything. And the reminder that it is God who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek is echoing the promises of God given to Abram in Genesis 12, Right? God said to Abram, I will give you and your descendants after you everything. God said to Abram in Genesis 12 and 13, actually Genesis 13, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. I will give you the victory. (laughs) And, And 
Melchizedek is reminding Abram of these things, even as he blesses Abram and God for the victory that has just been won. Other than the bread and wine that Melchizedek brings out, and there's a whole story there in terms of fellowship. But anyway, other than that, there's no riches given to Abram by Melchizedek. There's just words and sustenance. Now, the reminder, I think, to us here is that we need people like Melchizedek in our lives. And we need to be people like Melchizedek in the lives of others. We need to bless one another for trusting God. Isn't it good to give that blessing to another and receive that blessing from another when in the midst of our weakness, because we are weak, you know your heart. I've told you enough about mine. You don't know the half of it. When we are weak, and yet by God's grace, we are strong. It is such a good thing to hear someone bless us for trusting God in that way. And it's such an encouragement to bless others in the same way when they do the same. Blessing. A blessing to God when you are vulnerable. Whether it's vulnerable because you're on the other side of a, of a failure, you've repented, or whether you're vulnerable because you're going through a season of particular suffering and hardship, whether you're vulnerable because you're just confused. God, what are you doing? To have someone come along in the midst of that, hear your struggle, enter in, come alongside and say, praise God. What an encouragement that is. To be able to come alongside you and in the words of the great hymn writer, trace the rainbow through the rain. And remember that the promises are not vain and that morn shall indeed tearless be. To have someone come alongside and bless you and to bless God alongside you and in the process remind you of what's true. Oh, man, what a blessing that is. We need people like that in our lives. We are called to be people like that in the lives of others. And what better opportunity to speak those words of blessing and reminder than over a good meal. Abram reminds reminds us, of our need to be courageous, both in battle and in victory. Melchizedek reminds us how much we need encouragement. But then third, let's look at how Christ is better than both. Jesus is the conquering king. Jesus is the one who wins the victory. Paul in Ephesians 6 tells us that Jesus is the one who ascends on high, leading captives in his train, and distributes gifts to men. In the same way that ancient Near Eastern kings, when they conquered, would do the same thing. They would come back into their hometown. They would have the the vassal king and some of his soldiers 
chained behind him, leading them in, and then would distribute the booty of war to the people in his town, so too Jesus is the king who, spiritually speaking, has conquered all his and our enemies, has conquered our great foe, Jesus Christ, is holding him captive. Jesus, as, I'm sorry, no, (laughs) Satan, as Martin Luther said, is God's Satan. There is nothing that Satan does apart from God's holy and perfect will. And Jesus distributes gifts, spiritual gifts, the very gifts that we need for the spiritual battles that we find ourselves in. His victory was spiritual, conquering sin and death, and so his gifts are spiritual. Jesus is the true and greater Abram. He's the true and greater conqueror, as we see in this passage. He is also the true and greater Melchizedek. The priesthood of Jesus is eternal. Melchizedek comes and goes. He points us to Jesus. He's not the eternal priest. It's not the blood of Melchizedek that cries out for our atonement. It's the blood of Christ. And Jesus is the only priest, not only priest, but king priest who comes from Jerusalem and not just the earthly Jerusalem but the Jerusalem that is from above Jesus is a king who fights our battles for us through us by his spirit he is the priest who always lives to make intercession for us so whether it is in the heat of battle or in the vulnerability of victory And even though we have, by God's grace, people in this church family who will come alongside and speak words of blessing and words of encouragement, and even though we, by God's grace, are privileged to be able to do the same in the lives of others, none of that is enough. None of that will save. Only Jesus saves. We have in him the one who has won it all. We have in him the one who has and ultimately will give us all. And we have in him the one who will never, ever, ever cease praying for us. It's good news, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder from your word. Lord, you give us, you've given us Abram and Melchizedek as examples, but Lord, they, we need more than an example. And so we thank you for the things that we learn from this text, and we do pray that by your Spirit you'd help us to put them into practice. Lord, ultimately we are thankful that our standing before you does not depend on our ability to show courage or be a blessing. It is ultimately upon the courage of the one who overcame and the blessing that he bestows. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.